Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We have now made it to the halfway point of the book of Ecclesiastes. And with our care groups meeting every other week, it seems like it's taking us a long time to get through this book. But I have been so encouraged at reading through this with you and studying it alongside you and remembering that this is a sermon. We've broken this book down. It's taken us the better part of a year to work through. But remember, this was a sermon that Solomon preached that had a beginning, a body, and a conclusion. And we're just taking different points of his sermon out and examining them. And sometimes when you do that, you, you miss the run-up to what he was uh, explaining to get to this point, And you miss the conclusion and the application that he was looking for at the end. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we come to... These first 14 verses, and your Bible probably has them kind of indented. This is a poem. It's done in very strict and uh, beautiful Hebrew poetry. But it comes across, at least in this instance, in the English, very, very well. Let me just read that and put it in our minds, and then we'll study it together. Solomon says, A good name is better than an ointment, a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. And this too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager and your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom, along with an inheritance, is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man will not discover anything that will be after him. One of the most valuable lessons of life is to learn that things are not always as they seem. I distinctly remember when uh, our oldest son, Luke, who's turning 20 today, turned 20 today. It's hard to believe uh, he's away at college. But I remember he was just a young guy, probably three or four years old, having a, a debate with this child over what was more valuable, a piece of paper that was oblong and green or four heavy 25-cent quarter coins. He couldn't believe. He, he wanted the coins because the paper didn't seem heavy or substantial enough. It didn't come across as, it, as the truth it was to him. He seemed differently than the truth. 
Or, and I'm sorry, I know that we have several dentists and orthodontists in our, in our church, Richard and Steve and, and Richard. And the pain of a dentist is better than the pain of a cavity or an abscess, right? We never realize that till the end, but it is better. Now, I want to tell you that the dentists that I've gone to in our church are very good dentists, and so the, the, what I'm about to say doesn't apply to them, of course, right? But I grew up with mortal terror of the dentist. I mean, there was nothing that I dreaded anymore. They just seemed to be torture shops, sounds and smells and it was just a stainless steel, and they always hid what they were doing from you and put a bright light in your eyes. I still think that there are things that are not right about that. It's good for you, though. Things aren't always as they seem. This is the lesson of perspective, interpretation of wisdom. Just as you should never judge a book by its cover, you should never assume things are always as they seem. And that's exactly what Solomon is talking about here. Now, a little review. Remember, he's writing a reflection about life at the end of the most interesting life that we can imagine. This was a guy who was given all the possible money that could, that could be had. He had unsearchable riches, and he had un, undiminished power. He had the power and the riches to do, experience, or purchase anything he wanted. Now, just try that on your mind for a moment. Nothing hindered him from doing or getting anything he wanted. He was the king of Israel as well as the richest and wisest man to live up to that point. He was given unrestrained power, unlimited resources by God to give proper spiritual leadership to Israel. You go back to the encounter in 1 Kings 4, and that's exactly what he was given wisdom to do, to rule the people well so that they would know the difference between right or wrong and wise and unwise. And yet he exercised his power and his wisdom on frivolous experiments. Remember chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes? These six pleasures he tried. He tried all of these pleasures. And in the end, he said it's vanity. It doesn't, it doesn't last. The pleasure doesn't last. It left him empty. It left him very unsatisfied. He had pursued, pursued women and sex and relationships and materialism. And the end result was that he exchanged a heart for God for the soul of emptiness. So at the end of his life, he comes to, I think, write and pen the book of Ecclesiastes. Proverbs, especially those first nine chapters, is Solomon at the beginning of his life. Rehoboam is probably just a little guy at that time. He's warning him of things that Rehoboam would ultimately fall in if you read 1 Kings chapter 12 and following. And yet, Solomon himself blew it. And as we've said over and over, Ecclesiastes is almost like Solomon gets in a car, runs off a cliff, rolls over, catches fire. He jumps out, rolls himself out, looks back up at the cliff at you and, and me getting in the car and says, don't do what I did. So really the lesson of Ecclesiastes is we can learn by God-ordained experience lived by Solomon or we can learn from our own experience. In a sense, it's a warning a warning not to traverse the same precarious pursuits that this king had fallen into. Solomon was a prolific writer. 1 Kings 4.32 records that he also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. And as you know, he penned the book of Proverbs as an instruction manual for his sons to be ready to lead the nation. And yet here in Ecclesiastes, 
He once again becomes a proverbial writer. These are all short, staccato little proverbs put into this one poem. It's sobering, it's insightful, and he employs a style of the proverbs that he uses so often, especially in those first nine chapters of Proverbs, in order to make one exclamation point, and that's to give us perspective. He wants us to back up and have perspective. There, is, there are few things that are more powerful to anyone, especially a believer, than perspective. Than to have the right view of things. Than to see that they aren't always as they seem. That's the biblical description of wisdom. So he's going to show us in these 14 verses this little poem that not only are things not always as they seem, things must be interpreted. We have to have a theological grid to look at life, to look at tragedy, to look at the high points and the low points, to look at birth and death and everything in between. He wants us to develop a God-centered, God-informed perspective. So, he's going to draw a verbal picture for us that the best in life, that is God's best, is not always what we would choose or interpret as good. The title is pretty simple. There's a difference between good and best. Best is better than good. And sometimes we choose what's good over what's best because what's best doesn't seem best. It's like those four quarters that don't seem to have as much value as that dollar or the dollar that doesn't seem to have as much value as those quarters. Now listen carefully. If we understand this section of Ecclesiastes, I think our life will be guarded so that what we perceive as good won't turn into what Solomon's going to explain to us, which is bad. If we choose the best way, that's always better than a good or even a short-term satisfying way. So, before we jump in, I want to set the context a little bit with some Hebrew. There's a Hebrew term that you have to learn tonight. It's not a hard term. It's an easy term. It's a workhorse term. It's used over 10 times in this passage. It's the word tov. T-O-V. Tov is translated as good. But in the Hebrew, we have good and better than. Which is kind of the same idea, but it's a different word. Here, it's not good and better than. It's good and gooder. That's the way you would say it. Something is gooder than something. Better than is the comparative. But the Hebrew is even more specific. Something is good, but something is good-errest than that. If I can say that. Choose 10 times in this passage, twice as an adjective. Verse 1 is an adjective to a nominative for you English buffs, and once as a predicate adjective in verse 11. The other eight times it's used as a comparative. It's translated better or better than, but it's still the same Greek Hebrew word of tov. There's really no different understanding of this in English and in Hebrew. Good is always defined in reference and in comparison to something else. What's most important is how we make the definitions for defining and comparing the good and the better. So we can either use our own personal experience and knowledge, or we can use God's wisdom on defining what's good and what's best. The passage organizes itself around seven better than concepts. But we should remember that these are always defined by what God says, not by our intuition. If we're left to our own instincts and to our own intuition, we're rarely going to make the distinction between good and best. 
It's important we understand that best is seen from God's view. And in this passage, good is sometimes seen from what we would choose or our view. I don't see a lot of movies. I'm not much of a movie guy, but I will confess one of the few I've seen is The Wizard of Oz. Um, remember the climax of The Wizard of Oz when the characters bring back the witched wick, <laughs> wicked witch's broom and during that frightening encounter. I, that used to scare me as a kid. That, that uh, green lady was so terrifying. Well, they're presenting this and the little dog, remember the dog's name? Toto. Goes over to the curtain and pulls back the curtain and then we find out what? Oz is just a little guy with a bunch of levers. It's a lie. This is exactly what Solomon's doing in this passage. He's going over and pulling back the curtain and saying, what lies do you believe? What lies about the world? What's your perspective that you've bought in reference to how the world defines good and best and how we, have we really believed that or adopted Satan's lies about life? Now, if we review chapter 6, that taught us that prosperity is not always or necessarily good. Sometimes it's bad. Now, in chapter 7, he's going to teach us that adversity is not always or necessarily bad. So if you read the book of Ecclesiastes in context, what we usually perceive as good isn't always good. There can be some bad parts of that. What we perceive as bad isn't always bad. There can be some good parts to that. So let's look at this and kind of pull ourselves around this outline. Proverbial wisdom for a better biblical mindset. Proverbial wisdom, because Solomon puts this in the category or in the, uh, the um, condition of Proverbs here. Structure of Proverbs. Proverbial wisdom for a better or biblical mindset. The first is in the first phrase of verse 1. A good name is better than living in luxury. And what we're going to do is have a statement, and then there's a practical application under each of these statements that we'll get to. A good name is better than living in luxury. At issue here is the importance of a good reputation. A good name, verse 1, is better than a good ointment. What is he talking about here? He's talking about a reputation, how we're known. Proverbs 10, 7, the memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will not be. Proverbs 22, 1, proverb I think most of you are familiar with. A good name is to be more desired than great riches. Favor is better than silver and gold. In other words, who we are is much more important than what we have or what we do. Character counts. Character matters. Godliness is the greatest treasure. Names are interesting parts of our being. Very interesting. Think of the association of a name with a reputation. The mere mention of a name, some names garner a whole bevy of reputation. Florence Nightingale, Billy Graham, Daniel, Jesus. Pretty powerful to say those names. They, you have a whole world of thinking when you hear those names, right? How about this? Benedict Arnold, Charles Manson, Stalin, Hitler, Judas. How powerful is a name? Your name represents in the mind of everyone who knows you, everything they know about you. 
That's a crazy thought. Somewhere tonight, no doubt, no doubt this week, someone is going to have a conversation in which they will reference your name. It could be your first name, your last name. It could be mom, dad. They're going to reference your name. And when that name comes into a person's mind, everything they know and feel and sense about you comes to mind when you hear that name. It's all about reputation. You have a reputation that's already written and being written and rewritten over and over on the, the, the parchment of the people you know in their mind every day. It's your reputation. Solomon understands that. And he says a good name, a reputation is better than a good ointment. There were no medical doctors in this day. The best they had were, were uh, physicians. Luke would be a physician a few centuries later. Physicians who were very good with herbs and spices and they would create ointments as, as ways of curing colds and dealing with flus and dealing with scratches and cuts. No stitches. They would have ointments that would, that would uh, instantly kind of cauterize and keep bleeding to a minimum. They had, they had uh, like aloe vera, those kind of plants that would help burn all sorts of knowledge. These ointments were very pricey. Only the wealthy had this medicine. Solomon says a good name is better than a good ointment. What does the ointment do? It cures. A good name is better than anything that can cure. Wealth and luxury of these ointments have no comparison with someone's good name. The point is simple. There's no possession that you own more valuable than your reputation. What are you doing with that? Is that not a humbling thought that you, when your name is uttered, <laughs> this thing comes into their mind called you? Do you understand now why the emphasis is put so much on God's name in, in, in the Bible? His name is everything we think about him. He treasures and promotes and defines his name. His name is not to be taken in vain our names are who we are, and they're to be protected and promoted. So what? Well, application. So you should pursue your reputation. Pound on your reputation. Pursue it more than a career. Your character even more than your career. Typically, people define themselves by career, by what they do. Don't define yourself by what you do. Define yourself by who you are. Number two. <laughs> Remember, the best is better than good, and it's not intuitive. How about this? The day of death is better than the day of birth. I didn't make this up. Listen to what Solomon says in verse 1 as well. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. This is a remarkable statement. Who can say that? Only one whose eternity is secure, right? Obviously, you can't even have a day of death without a day of birth. So how can the statement be true first? It's only true from a biblical perspective. It's only true from a biblical perspective. Only true for a believer. Going to heaven, in other words, is much better than coming into a broken and sinful world. For an unbeliever, death may seem to be a relief and a reprieve from the miseries of life. But in reality, it's the worst of all their experiences. It's a doorway into eternal destruction. 
You say, what is this doing in the Bible? Why would Solomon say this? There's so many applications of this. If you think about it, for uh, someone who's had a miscarriage or a stillborn child, someone who's had a child go to heaven in the early years, you understand this, don't you? There's a sense in which I was sharing with a, uh, uh, a friend of ours, Kim and I know a, a gal who had multiple miscarriages and has now, by God's grace, had two lovely little daughters. We were just talking about this a few nights ago. Uh, I was in California. And um, she referenced this passage. She said, I didn't, I didn't fully understand what Solomon was saying here. Now that I'm watching my girls grow up and just turning on the news and seeing the, the, the world they're growing up in, I understand for them that this passage is true. What a great perspective. On the other end of life, for those who know Christ, this is true. That death really is better than our first birth. It's true, but it doesn't matter. What difference would it make? We talk about this from time to time. How different would we be if, if we really, really honestly believed and banked on our belief in the resurrection? You do believe in the resurrection, right? And that that will be better than this? We'll see in a moment that God sends, God's grace sends Things into our life in this world that make us want to unhinge our talons, our grip on this planet so that heaven is actually more attractive. So what? So be sure you're ready to die and face a holy judge. That's going to be the conclusion of the whole book, by the way. Be sure you're ready to die and face a holy judge. This perspective even gets a little bit more odd in the next principle, the next proverb. Morning is better than merriment. Not morning like, as opposed to evening, morning like grieving. Morning is better than merriment. Verse 2. He says, right after talking about death being better than birth, it's better to go into a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. In other words, it's better to attend a funeral than a birthday party. This follows closely on the heels of number two. And again, it sounds absurd to someone who doesn't know God. How can it be better to go to a funeral than a birthday party? But there's so much packed in this statement. Spiritually, mourning over sin is much better than a mindless enjoyment of life. But the context here is mourning over someone who has died. How can we say this? Why is this true? Because death brings us to think about life. Do you remember the last funeral you attended? Being a, being a pastor makes you very aware and acquainted with, with death and dying. I remember just a few weeks ago we had a funeral here. Every funeral I've ever conducted, every funeral I've ever sat in, you know where you rush, don't you, in your mind? You want to honor the person, you want to honor the life. Every single time, though, all of us face the reality that one day we will lie in a coffin. 
And Solomon says, that's a good thought. Because you're not ready to know how to live until you know you're ready to die. Michael Eaton says, every funeral anticipates our own. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, so teach us to number our days. Today is almost over. You'll never have it again. You have one less day of your life than you did when you got up this morning. You say, well, yeah, that's true tomorrow. Sure it is. And the next day, it is. You do realize that the sand of your life is leaking out of the hourglass day by day, minute by minute, right? And Solomon's saying, if your life is right with God, that's a good thought. It gives you perspective. It makes you live based on the right kind of values and making the best decisions, not just good decisions. Genesis 50, verse 10, funerals were, in a sense, a party with perspective lasting a week or so. And when faced with our own death for so long and so intense a time, the result is to live in anticipation of our own funeral. We kind of say it tritely, but let's, let's go beyond the gravestone. We often say, what, what do you want or what do you hope is written on your gravestone? You do know that you're not going to have much power on that, Right? How about what's going to be said at your funeral? I won't steal from a future sermon, but Solomon is going to tell us in two chapters. People are going to, when you die, people will come, they'll be sad, and then they'll go on with their life. And it's true, is it not? And even that's a grace. Can you imagine if we had to bear the grief of losing loved ones without any grace or any, any bereavement over a long period of time? Mourning is better than merriment. We learn more from our mourning than we do from our Christmas parties and birthday parties. So what? So learn to learn from pain. This is the message of Job. This is the message of Ecclesiastes. Learn how to learn from pain. He'll get more specific on that in a moment. Number four, sorrow is better than laughter. You almost start laughing at these points after a while. Really, sorrow is better than laughter? Look at verses three and four. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise in the house of mourning while the, is in the house of the morning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. This goes back up and picks the point that he's making in the, in the previous one. The end of every man is known. We who are living take it to heart. That way we have this perspective that sorrow is better than laughter. Again, we're, we're still at the coffin. We're standing over the coffin, as it were, in the second and third and fourth Proverbs. The simple reality of these three Proverbs is that thinking about death and all that comes with it brings more profit than thinking and merriment and life. You know, you read these and you understand that for a believer, life, life really is more sober. Now, it's all so full of more joy. We'll get to that part. But there's a sobriety about it. We realize there's a heaven and there's a hell. There's a holy God and a righteous judgment that's coming. 
we're obsessed with laughter in our culture. There's a whole genre of television called sitcoms, right? Situation comedies. We love to laugh. You can learn a lot about your own heart and anybody else's. You can learn a lot about your own spiritual maturity by what makes you laugh and what makes you cry. What do we find funny? What do we use to sustain laughter? In verses 3b at the end there, verses 4, there's, there's a happiness in the heart of a wise man who's experiencing sorrow. What does that mean? A wise man lends his discernment and understanding to the times of sorrow rather than in the times of pleasure in a more gravitas sense. A wise man can see that it's best in sorrowful times to have the realities of our perspective in check than it is in good times where you're not thinking about anything heavy. This is not Eeyore theology where we go around sad about everything. This is a perspective that understands that life is serious and heaven and hell are real. Does this mean you should never laugh? Boy, I hope not. We have joy as a believer like no one else does. But we do have to check our hearts. What, what makes us laugh? Sorrow is better than laughter. So what? So keep your mind in heaven when the world gets you down. It's going to. It's not if. It's when. The world is going to pull us down to thinking badly and wrongly. And Solomon is saying, keep your mind with a heavenly perspective. Number five, rebuke from a wise man is better than praise from a fool. Look at verse five. It's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes are under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This is an interesting passage. It's talking about being willing to be corrected, being willing to be rebuked. Solomon turns what, to what others will say about you during your life, the impact that, that will have on you, and whether or not it will change who we are. Who do you listen to? This has got a dual uh, uh, blade. It's, it's a two-edged sword, too. It, it talks about who we listen to, but it also speaks to how we speak to others. Are we correcting and are we correctable? That's what's at stake here. The end here that he talks about is the understanding that God will give to those who seek his perspective and view blessing. And know this, some of this perspective may not come to heaven. It may not just march out and meet us in the morning. This is kind of the Romans 8.28 of Ecclesiastes. Remember, it's the contemplation of the truth of God that will get us through our toughest hours. It's interesting here when he says, listen to the songs of fools. There's a direct application there for the kind of music we listen to. Solomon is talking specifically about listening to songs that have worldly wisdom and foolish advice, ridiculous assertions. I have to guard my own heart. I like music. I can tend to listen to music and, and uh, kind of hum music and memorize music without much effort. And then you realize what you're singing and what you're saying. You ever done that? 
What's your music like? You can probably tell a lot about our character by turning on our iPods, iPhones, MP3, computers, Spotify lists. I don't even know what to call it anymore. However we access music. What does that say about us? Are we listening to the songs of fools where ungodly worldly wisdom is pumped into our mind with an easy to remember melody? A true friend rebukes his real friend. And a true friend listens to that rebuke. A fool tries to change you for his own profit and for your demise and not his. Verse 6, the laughter and flattery of a fool snaps and pops like the twigs under a pot that are on fire. They make a lot of noise, but have very little value. That's the point. When is it that we need to hear from a true friend? Well, this passage tells us when times of trial come, that's when this proverb rings so true. Look at verse 7. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. When things are happening, when you're taken advantage of, have you ever been taken advantage of and you want to run to someone just to say, what should I do? How, how, can, I, how can I respond to this? I look at this passage and I just ask myself, how correctable am I? Am I easy to be corrected? Who do I listen to? Where do I run for advice? The fool or the wise person? You know, there's, there's an old saying, if you want an opinion, ask a peer for advice. If you want counsel, ask someone with gray hair. There's a lot of wisdom in that, isn't there? Because often we give opinion based on the fact that we want to be liked for the opinion that we're giving instead of true counsel and true advice. Rebuke from a wise man is better than praise from a fool. So what? So welcome your critics and criticism. Welcome your critics and welcome your criticism. It's a friend of mine I have who, uh, uh, actually Kim and I, we've known him for years. He is... I've never known anyone quite like him. I remember one time going in his office and saying, listen, I, I want to, uh, you know, I don't know what was in your heart, but when you said this at that time, it just sounded a little prideful and da, da, da. He, he melted down. No, you've got to be kidding. Oh, I feel terrible. Do you think I hurt his feelings? Let's call him right now. It was, he rushed and ran to repentance. It's been something I've never forgotten. Usually our first response is, that's not true. Oh, you've got something to say to me? It's interesting you want to talk about this because i got a few things loaded to talk to you about too. No, that's not what it says. We listen to our critics. And even our enemies who criticize us typically criticize us with some little kernel of something that's true. Welcome your critics and criticism. Number six. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. Look at verse 8. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry. These next two Proverbs have to do with waiting patiently for the Lord in the middle of a difficulty, a trial, or a, uh, uh, a conflict with someone, being afflicted. 
The end here is understanding that God will give to those who seek his perspective the right end of that perspective. And again, it might not come until we get all the way into the end. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. That's so much truth. What he's saying is you can't always know what's going on until it's all played out. And sometimes it's not all played out until we're dead. And sometimes it's not even played out then. Don't trust the immediate perspective. So what? So the present is not eternal, neither heaven or hell. The present is not eternal. Don't think that this is all there's going to be, Solomon says. These last ones come very fast. Number seven, patience is better than anxiety. This is so good. Patience is better than anxiety. Look in the middle of verse eight. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness or being proud of spirit. Do not be eager in your own heart to be angry. For anger resides in the bosom of a fool. Proverbs tell us that fools are angry and angry people are fools. Patience here is the opposite of being angry. Sometimes we think patience is the ability to wait a long time for someone who's, who's shopping a little too long. But that's not what's going on in the idea of patience here. It's one of my favorite Hebrew words. We've talked about it before. Being patient means being long-nosed. It's kind of an odd Hebrew word. A long nose means that your face is not distorted. And the less patient you become, the angrier you become, and your nose just shortens up in your face. That's the word. God is said to have a long nose because he's patient. It's an interesting Hebrew word, but I think we understand it. I remember my dad's scrunched up nose just like it was yesterday. He's saying being patient is better than being angry. Anger's in the heart of the fool, and that's such a stab in my own heart. I have so much to repent of in this. I can get angry over people on the freeway. Nobody drives as well as me. Have you, have you noticed that? I just sense that, you know, it's my road. I pay taxes, so everyone else should get off of it. Or standing in line at a store and just get frustrated and angry. I don't know that I get any more frustrated or angry than in an airport. Trying to be godly in this description. There's thousands of people moving and someone wants to stop and see where their plane is going in the middle of the walkway there with no idea that there might just have to be hundreds of people around me trying to get somewhere. But they just stop and they look and people are just going all around them absolutely clueless. I feel sorry for the rest of the people around there because I know God's using that to sanctify me and they're in getting the overage of that. He's saying, be patient. Where do we learn this? We're patient with others because how is God toward us? Is God's nose long toward us? Aren't you glad that he is more inclined to grace and mercy than he is anger? Remember Exodus 34? He's eight times more inclined to mercy than at the end he says he'll not leave the guilty unpunished. Wow. So what? 
So trust God's justice and timing. Trust God. People are going to meet the Lord. Until they do, let's help them meet him in the right way. Trust God's justice and timing. Number eight. The wisdom of present perspective is better than the good old days. This is so practical if you have gray hair coming in. Look at verse 10. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? Do I even have to explain that verse to anyone who's a little older than maybe 20? This is not as good as it used to be. People were nicer. The world was better. Do you remember rightly? We all have this kind of amnesia about the way we grew up. For it's not from, with, not from wisdom that you ask about this. He's saying, you're a fool if you believe that it really is worse. You have a, a romanticized view of the past, he says. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who seek the sun. For wisdom is protection. Literally, it's literally you're in the shade, in a shadow. Just as money is puts you in the shade or in the shadow from the sun. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. How are you wise? By not mistaking the past and the present with a romanticized view that it really was better. Also know this, the past is gone. It's, you can't go back there. It wasn't as good as we really remember. Wisdom views it differently and note that this is the wisdom that's a protection to a believer, a wise man. Great temptation to look at the past is better than the present. Solomon tells us that that is utterly foolish. And even if it was a little better back then, we are closer to our day of eternity. And that's where we should look forward, not backwards. You know, you, we, we, we talk about this, but my, my, my father, who I had loved, had a great relationship with. I think is enjoying the delights of heaven even tonight. But anytime I would complain, boy, did he have a story about his past. Oh, you think that's bad. And then I would hear it. You know, the in the snow, uphill, both ways, defying gravity, that was all I heard. Don't remember the good old days. Do what? So live in the moment, not in the past or in the future. All you have is now, Solomon says, this is it. All you have is now. Now, that's the, the bulk of the poem. These next two verses really summarize everything. So how, what's the practical takeaway? Verse 13 says, Consider the work of God. Think of what God does. Looking at all of life, who is able to straighten what he has bent? Stop right there. God brings bent, broken things into our lives. Do you see that? It seems like the last year all we've studied is the sovereignty of God. It just keeps coming up in every passage. God sometimes sends bent things, broken things into our lives. Why? He just told us sorrow is better. Perspective is better. Dependence is better. Consider the work of God. God, God doesn't always give us these pristine lives with no trouble. Is it all bad? No. Look at verse 14. So, in the day of prosperity, be happy. 
He's not saying, if all this is true, then go out and find something to be sorry about. You know, go wreck your car so you have something to fix. That's not what he's saying. If you're in a happy place, enjoy it. In the day of prosperity, be happy. If you're not in the middle of a trial, don't go try to find one. But in the day of trial, in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. There's the summary of the whole poem. God makes good, God makes bad, God makes it all for our enjoyment and our perspective so that a man will not discover anything that will be after him. You know what he's saying? He's talking about death. You you don't know about the great unknown as much as you could compared to this life. But you do know about the life God's given you. Have the perspective. And I love the way he ends this because this is such a heavy passage, a heavy poem, that it's easy to say, well, you know, I, I'm actually in a pretty good place right now. And if I'm in a pretty good place, how do I apply this? Solomon says, be happy. If you're in a great place, be happy. But know that it's unlikely that you'll stay in that happy state indefinitely. Is that true? This is preparation. This is putting tools in our belt for... For a job we might not have to even, it's not even on our radar yet. God is precious in his sovereignty. So what's the takeaway from all this? Consider the work of God, meaning that all we have is the outworking of God's providence. God has never said whoops, oops, one time in his life. And his life is long. Never any mistakes. I love again how these passages tend to line us up for the Lord's table. What I want to do is to go back. If you take, turn over to Psalm 32 for a moment. Excuse me, Psalm 23. Everyone knows the 23rd Psalm. Most of us have it memorized. There's a little nugget in there. And Aaron so uh, wonderfully took us to this place at our they're singing earlier, looking at the incarnation, looking at that Christmas song in a season that's not Christmas season. You know this well. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack or want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this is what I want us to consider. I fear no evil is one translation, harm, difficulty. You could even call it trial. Why? How? Because of the incarnation. Look at that. For you are with me. Jesus, his name is Emmanuel, meaning God, what? With us. You know, in, in, in times of trouble, in times of joy, good times and bad, we have to remember, we need to remember, we get to remember that God, he's with us. And Romans 8 tells us he's not only with us, as a believer, he's for us. How much do we remember the omnipresence and the omniscience of God? In any trial, the psalmist says, my hope my confidence is that you haven't left me. It's that you're with me. 
We're going to turn our attention to the table now 